Our text is Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth, the truth of the gospel. And we pray that that truth may cause those of us who are believers to rejoice in the gift that you have given to us. And if there is any here apart from the Lord Jesus, apart from faith in him, may these words become clear in their hearts and minds, and may they turn to the Lord Jesus and the grace that he offers through his cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bob. I got to tell you, I'm excited to be diving into this verse with you because this verse changed my life a long time ago. Do you ever think about the faith that you place in your car every day? Back when I was a pool repair guy, I drove an old baby blue Chevy C20 van. Bob's familiar with it because he worked on it. It's basically a a big one-wheel drive box kite on wheels. For a long time, I didn't have the cash to fix the multitude of front-end parts that had completely worn out years before that. So in order to drive that van, I had to turn the steering wheel at least six inches in either direction before anything happened with the van. Steering uh, that beast was was one step shy of aerobic exercise, but I got I got pretty good at it. One windy winter day, I was driving down Spring Valley about 30 miles an hour, and I happened onto a nice shiny sheet of ice that extended and filled the road for at least two three hundred feet. There was a, another driver some distance ahead of me, not too far. He was doing his best to navigate that same treacherous sheet of ice, but I could tell immediately that he was moving slower than I was. I took my foot off the accelerator. I didn't touch the brakes. I did my best to just keep going straight. That went great for about two seconds. Then just as I did one of those uh, subtle six-inch steering corrections, I felt a gust of wind hit one side of that van, and it was as if I had jerked the wheel hard to one side. And the van went into a a long series of 360-degree spins in the middle of the road as it moved forward toward that other car. And it did so with all the finesse of an obese figure skater with an inner ear infection. All my knowledge about how to steer out of a slide was about as valuable to me in that moment as my knowledge of how to make a peanut butter sandwich. I I seem to remember shouting something quite loudly, loudly, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't Jesus take the wheel. (laughs) If the guy in front of me looked in his rearview mirror at any point during that episode, I'm sure it took a year off his life because he had absolutely no means whatsoever to get himself out of the way of the 3,000-pound baby blue whirlwind that was 
hurtling toward him like a top. But by the grace of God, who is worthy of my trust, both that other driver and I were protected from the mechanical limitations of a vehicle which clearly was not worthy of my trust. I didn't hit any other car. I didn't even so much as bounce a tire off a curb. And when the pirouettes finally ended, my van was perfectly centered in one lane, pointed in the right direction. It was as if God had reached down and said, oh, let me fix that for you. And sometimes I forget to thank God for stuff, but I didn't that day. In case you haven't noticed, the only way for you to function productively day by day is to put your trust in all manner of questionably trustworthy objects. Your car, the bridge you drive across to get to work, the computer you use to do your work, and a multitude of other things. By and large, those objects in which you place your faith generally prove trustworthy worthy of the of the level of trust that you put in them. But when you misjudge the trustworthiness of one of those objects, things can get pretty dicey pretty quickly. Unless, unless there is someone in control of all those things and all those people whose trustworthiness overrides their shortcomings. This morning we're going to talk about that one object of your trust who makes all the other objects completely insignificant. The first goal of this message is that you and I will genuinely understand how to live well, to live confidently, joyfully, and usefully. And we'll see that God's answer to the how is all about the worthiness and trustworthiness of the one in whom you place your trust. It's not about what you do. It's about who He is and what He has done. And then the second and bigger goal is that having that understanding of how to live well will actually live well. And my prayer is that that will be true of every person in this room. And that's not too big a request to make of God. The Bible is filled with this theme, but we're going to focus our attention this morning on one particular verse that distills hundreds of other verses in both Testaments into a single, revolutionary, worldview-changing sentence that tells us how to live well as children of God. And that is, of course, the verse that Bob just read, Galatians 2.20. We'll talk some about the context in which that verse appears as we go, but if you weren't here last time, You may want to listen to the audio of that message to be sure you understand how this verse fits in the big picture of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. The short version is it's actually just one sentence of Paul's rebuke of the Apostle Peter found in verses 11 to 21. That rebuke is recorded here for the sake of the Galatian believers and for the sake of every believer in Jesus Christ since these things were written. I hope that includes you. I want to show you where we're going. The title of this message is How to Live Well. There are two things in the first part of this verse that God calls us 
to count as true. Then in the second part of the verse, there's one thing that God calls us to do. I'll explain later what I mean by count as true. It's not quite the same thing as just knowing and believing. Those are important. Also, before I show you the points, Paul declares everything in this verse to be true of himself personally in his relationship with Jesus Christ. This is very personal. But Paul didn't write these things. The the Galatian saints could say, isn't that nice for Paul? These things are just as powerfully and just as personally true for each of you who belongs to Jesus Christ today as they were when Paul wrote them. So I'm going to take the liberty of presenting his first-person singular points in the second-person singular, you. The two things that we are called to count as true are very much tied to each other. You could easily make the case that they're really just one point. You have been crucified with Christ, and you no longer live, but Christ now lives in you. And then based on those two powerful truths, Paul declares how it is that you now live. You live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and delivered Himself up for you. The first proposition is that you have been crucified with Christ. The believer's union with Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection is a powerful and recurring theme in the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul. In Romans 6, Paul says all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. He says we died with Christ in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too might be raised up to walk in newness of life. And that's what's pictured when people get baptized. After talking about the participation of every believer in both the death and the resurrection of Christ, Paul goes on to explain in Romans 6 that there are three things to which we died when we died with Christ. Those three things are self, law, and sin. We died to self, we died to the law, and we died to sin. Our death to self means that our old identity, everything that made us us before Christ redeemed us, is of no consequence to us now. Our death to the law means that we have utterly abandoned and turned away from law-keeping as a way to be righteous. Our death to sin means that sin no longer has any mastery over us. It no longer has any control over us. In Galatians 2, Paul just talked about that second thing, the law. He said, for through the law, verse 19 of Galatians 2, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. And that's a huge theme throughout Galatians, our death to the law. But the aspect of our crucifixion with Christ, the death upon which Paul focuses his attention in Galatians 2 verse 20, is the first of those three things, our death to to self. And so that's what we're going to focus our attention on at this point.
He speaks of our crucifixion with Christ in this verse in order to remind Peter and to remind us that we have died to our old self. That's why I said earlier that the two propositions here could be viewed as just one. You, your old self, has been crucified with Christ, thus you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. This is one of the most revolutionary things that you will ever know. In fact, it's hard to imagine any single truth that could be more relevant to how you actually live day by day. How many times have you heard a professing Christian say, you need to learn to love yourself? Or, I'm trying to find myself. Or, my child is crippled by low self-esteem and I don't have a clue how to help her. Or, I could never be a missionary. I just don't have what that would take. I believe God has a response for you in response to all of those kinds of questions. And His his question to you is, why are you seeking the living among the dead? You died with Christ and in Christ, and it is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. So that self you're trying to find, that self you're trying to love, that self whose self-esteem you're so bent on fixing is dead. And that's what we call good riddance. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that killed a wretch like me in order to give me a whole new identity in Jesus Christ. Now, there's certainly a miracle and a mystery here that goes way beyond what any of us can fully grasp, either now and probably even in eternity. But don't get hung up on what you don't understand. I think a lot of Christians get little actual value from this amazing verse and this amazing truth because they can't figure out how it is that God can say in the same verse, You died with Christ and you no longer live and then immediately say, say, now, here's how you live. It should be clear to us that God is not talking about a woodenly, literal, physical reality here. The body you're walking around in now did not get physically nailed to the cross when Jesus died and it's not sitting physically with Christ at the right hand of God now. It's sitting right here. This is about your old identity and your new identity. Paul was talking about what formerly made you who you were and what now makes you who you are. What made you who you were was your spiritual deadness. That identity died when you got saved. God put you in Christ and He put Christ in you. And His presence in you your union and identification with Him completely defines who you are now. That miraculous union (laughs) tells you and everyone else who you are. Nothing about your old identity and way of life has anything to do with your new identity and way of life. Everything you need to know about you, you discover by looking at Christ.
everything. And as soon as you start qualifying that or watering it down in any way, you turn your, your eyes away from the miraculous power of this truth. Brothers and sisters, if you are crippled by a lousy self-concept, your problem is not that you're giving yourself too little credit. Even though the world and a whole bunch of Christian counselors, I put Christian in quotes, will happily tell you that that's exactly what your problem is, that you're giving yourself too little credit. No. If you're being shut down by low self-esteem, your problem is that you're giving yourself too much credit. You may think very little of your own worth, but if you're a child of God, beloved, that's back page news. Your problem is that you think you have far more to do with your own value and usefulness to God than you actually do because in reality, you have nothing to do with those things. God couldn't be more clear about this. Just read Romans chapter 3 starting at verse 9 and Romans chapter 5 starting at verse 6. You want to know what you brought to the table for God to use? For God to find valuable? Your deadness. Your helplessness. You were His enemy, not His friend. You were lost and dead in your sin with absolutely nothing that you could do about it. And there is just one reason now, just one, that you are now powerfully and eternally valuable and useful and beautiful to God. Christ in you. When I was a kid, I was a poster child for bully targets everywhere. I was the nerdy kid with the really weird hair. I used this stuff called butch wax to paste it down. Until a show called The Mod Squad came out and I could finally wear it in a fro the way it wanted to go. I've got a senior picture that some of you have seen. My face was covered with the second worst acne in my entire high school. I couldn't get a girl to return my love until I was 26 years old and she's sitting right back there. And I fell in love with pretty much every girl that smiled at me. I was the last one picked for teams in P.E., the first one to blow the play whenever anyone made the mistake of giving me the ball. For a long time, I had to take meds to avoid throwing up every morning before I headed to school because I was so controlled by my fears. Then my high school biology teacher, public school, introduced me to the real Jesus Christ. Not the one I thought I knew, the one in the Bible, the one who became my life. Now, nearly every week, I do the one thing that numerous polls say men fear even more than death and snakes, public speaking. It still scares me every week, but not because I'm afraid to talk in front of a crowd. My knees tremble because every week I acknowledge before God who it is that I represent and whose word I am accountable to rightly handle. You know why I'm able to do it? Just one thing. Christ in you.
By the way, beloved, if, if what you demand of me is superiority of speech and persuasive words of wisdom, I want you to know that's not my job description. I, I do my best every week to communicate well and to become a better communicator. But I am charged by God to do one thing, and that is to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Demand that of me relentlessly. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6 is the theme verse for ministry for me. Theme passage. Very simple. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. How do you know that you can actually be used by God to show Him off to other people the way Titus 2 calls you to do? Just one thing. Christ in you. How do you know that God can and will use you to change the lives of people around you for all eternity. In fact, that He will use you as His ambassador and His showcase to give life to dead people. Just one thing answers the question decisively. Christ in you. How do you know that your own grievous limitations won't severely limit what God is able to do through you? Just one thing settles it. Christ in you. Many years ago, a young man who wanted with all his heart to go to the other side of the world to serve Christ came to me nearly in tears and he he said he didn't think that he should even try because of his struggle with chronic depression. But when I watched how he lived, I saw the love of Jesus Christ for lost sinners coming out of every pore. So I asked him, which actually determines your usefulness to God? Your struggle with depression or the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in you? And we read 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6 and prayed together. A few days later, he announced his intention to initiate the process with the missions organization, and he's been a missionary ever since. How do you know that you can be entrusted with the insanely huge responsibility of raising a child without ruining that child. Even though you're still struggling every single day to overcome the temptation to sin and selfishness and anger and unforgiveness and hypocrisy in your own life. Simple. Just one thing. Christ in you. There's only one in this universe who is qualified to raise the children that He creates. There is nothing more practical than this. There is nothing more life-changing. There is nothing more enabling than Christ in you, the hope of glory. And there's a very important corollary to this miraculous truth. 2 Corinthians 5.16 Bob talked about this on Wednesday morning. Paul says, 
From now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. That was read this morning as well. From now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. And what he means is, we see every man, woman, and child as either in Christ or not in Christ. And the very next verse, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And you know what new thing now defines that believer? Christ in him. We read those verses and somehow we tend to construe them as a command to act more like Christ. (laughs) No. The exhortation in those verses, beloved, is to see Christ in your brother and sister. Wives, when you look at your believing husband and all his shortcomings are screaming for your undivided attention, do you see Christ in him? Do you see the old dead guy? Or do you see the new man who has been made alive in Jesus Christ? Do you even look for Christ in your husband or have you forgotten how to do that because you haven't done it in so long? The question, of course, can be turned to the husbands as well. Do you know what God sees when He looks at your believing husband? He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees the beauty of Jesus Christ. He sees the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Why don't you see that? Knowing that this reality is true for every believer and counting it as true, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, saves marriages. It turns wimps into warriors for Christ. It binds the hearts of God's people together in unassailable unity. It energizes us in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it makes individual believers and the entire household of God powerful beyond measure. Because we see Christ where He is in His people, including in ourselves. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And he lives in every one of my fellow saints and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And beloved, that changes everything. That is a whole new grid for living. Because those first two propositions in the verse are true, there are massive and inescapable ramifications for how you and I actually live. If you died with Christ when He died, and it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you, you know what that does to you? It puts you in an absolutely dependent place. That's why salvation by grace alone has to be salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. Because if Christ is the one who does it all, if He does all the saving, your part consists of your dependence on Christ. Not passive dependence. Conscious, deliberate dependence. There's there's one word for that. Faith. This all runs very contrary to the world's way of doing things. We're rugged individualists. We're supposed to control our own lives and destinies. But the way of this world is damned, so let it be damned. 
Everything about your life as a child of God depends utterly on what Jesus Christ is up to. (laughs) What He has done and what He is doing in you every day. Knowing that I have been crucified with Christ, that the old me no longer lives, but instead Christ lives in me, makes it crystal clear what I must do to live well now. I must put my faith in Him all the time. And I must trust Him alone. And that means I must never trust me or you with the things that only Christ does. Absolutely nothing of consequence in the Christian life can be based on what comes from me or from any other person or situation. I'm utterly dependent on Christ who is my God, my Savior, and my life. So He is the only legitimate object of my faith. Now this next point is the most important one you'll hear this morning. This is not about you mustering up more faith or better faith or more consistent faith. How quickly we replace old law with new law. How quickly we turn our eyes away from the author and perfecter of faith and we turn them to ourselves as if somehow we can drum up the faith that God requires. And then we can perfect it. We can make it better. That's not what Paul is saying. Look at the verbal real estate that Paul devotes to talking about his faith in this verse. How much does he have to say about the quality of his faith? How much does he say about the magnitude of his faith? How much does he say about the consistency of his faith? Not a word. In fact, I don't know how he could possibly have put less attention on his faith without just not mentioning faith at all. But faith is important here for one reason. If Paul does not draw attention to the quality or the magnitude or the consistency of his faith, to what does he draw attention when it comes to his faith? Just one thing. The object of his faith. The object of his faith See, he doesn't talk about the impressiveness of his trust in Christ. He talks about the impressiveness of Christ whom he trusts. What is it that he finds so impressive about this one worthy object of his faith? So impressive that it makes him absolutely, irresistibly compelled to trust that one object with everything that matters. What he finds so impressive is who Christ is and what Christ has done for him. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. We want God to give us something to do that will ensure that we'll live well. Even if that something is to reach down deep and dig in and come up with better faith. But instead of giving us something to do that moves us from living badly to living well, God gives us someone to trust. The one and only thing that you need to concern yourself with in order to honor God's call to live by faith is to concern yourself 
with who he calls you to trust. Consider the introductory verses to a few psalms. This is great. And this is just a little sampling. Psalm 23.1 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 46, 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, why do I not have to muster up faith in my Savior? Why is it a no-brainer to believe the promises of God and Jesus Christ because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for me? And the very essence of what He has done for me is that He has loved me. You know why Paul puts that in the past tense? Who loved me? Because he's talking about the cross. He says that when Jesus delivered himself up to die on that cross, he did so because he loved Paul personally. This has to be front and center all the time. This is how we live well. This is how we live for Christ. This is how we adorn the gospel that we preach instead of negating it. This is how we love people who are as unworthy of God's love as we are. This is how we forgive people who are as unworthy of God's forgiveness as we are. I want you to put your, yourself in Peter's sandals for a moment. If you're Peter hearing this rebuke from Paul for the first time, whatever you were thinking about, whatever you were talking with your Jewish friends about before Paul got in your face, vanishes and your mind is fully engaged as you think even briefly about the magnitude and power of what Paul is saying to you, the Holy Spirit uses those simple, profound declarations to pierce your heart. And the Spirit working through His Word begins to have His way with you once again. The eyes of your heart come to rest once again on the Son of God who loved you and delivered Himself up for you. The One in whom you died to the law and to sin and to self. And suddenly things become very clear again. <laughs> you find yourself wonderfully convinced of what you must do. You grab your plate of food from the Jewish table. You walk over to the table where the Gentiles are sitting and you set your plate down. You do so with absolute clarity, with no fear of what anyone in the room will think. And then you ask your brothers at the Gentile table to stand up from their reclining position on the floor for a moment and help you slide that table over up against the Jewish table. And then you all sit down and you start eating again. And while the Judaizers are glaring at you, you pay them no attention because their stares don't matter. And you look over at Paul and exchange glances with him and you see a big smile on his face. And you smile right back. 
because you both get it. This is personal. One of the things about this verse that practically leaps off the page is that it is deeply, deeply personal. It's talking about God and you. Paul uses the word I or me seven times in one verse. And as Steve Lawson points out in a message he did dedicated to this same verse, that's unprecedented in the rest of the Bible. But Paul didn't use, as I said before, he didn't use this language so the Galatian Christians could say, wow, isn't that great for Paul? Isn't it lovely that God showed Paul how to live well? No. Paul is speaking to each of us and he's saying, this is just as deeply personal and as profoundly transforming for you as it is for me. Guys, I have a confession to make. I've been so bent on making sure that we see the overwhelmingly corporate nature of most of the exhortations in the New Testament that I've gone too far in that effort sometimes. When we talked through Titus and we got to verse 14 of chapter 2 and it says that God, that Jesus gave Himself up to free us from every lawless deed, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. I said it's a people, not a person. But over the past couple of weeks as I looked at Galatians 2.20 and prayed it through over and over, Paul's words slapped me in the face very constructively. It happens a lot. We must never lose sight of the fact that the household of God is made up of men and women and boys and girls whom Jesus saves one soul at a time. Jesus is the perfect shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep in a safe pasture and he goes with fierce determination after that one sheep who is in a dark and dangerous place. And he takes that sheep, that lamb, up in his arms and he carries it lovingly back to the fold and sets it down with his other sheep so he can faithfully watch over and guide and protect all of them and every one of them. The Good Shepherd knows and loves, loves His flock. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Give me just another couple of minutes. Before I close, I've got to make one more critical and eminently practical connection. In Romans 6, Paul makes the case that you died to sin through your participation in Christ's crucifixion and you are alive to God through your participation in Christ's resurrection. But his so what for that passage is a command in verse 11, the first command in Romans 6. Even so, in other words, because this is true, consider, reckon, count yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider to be true what is true. Count as true what is true so that your life will actually be impacted by that truth today. You can believe, in fact, you can be absolutely certain that something is true until the cows come home but it will not change your life until it changes your mind. 
I'm not talking about some formula. I'm not talking about the very real difference between mere head knowledge and heart knowledge. I'm talking about the very real difference between actual belief and reckoning. Counting that which is true to be true today in the middle of the real issues of life. God's truth can certainly engage your mind without ever getting to your heart. But beloved, on any given day, God's truth will never change your heart and it will never impact your life until it changes your mind. Romans 12.2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove... And when he says that you may prove, he means that your life may bear out in provable, visible form that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How does your life come to bear out God's truth? Not until God's truth changes your mind today and tomorrow and the next day. I have strongly suggested to many of my brothers and sisters in Christ over the years that they find an unabridged concordance. Fortunately, you don't need one of those anymore. You can go online to lumina.bible.org or or other great Bible search uh, sites and look up, look up every occurrence of words like mind, reckon, think, consider, set your mind on, Let your mind dwell on. Keep thinking about. Fix your eyes upon. There are scores of such exhortations in the New Testament and the Old. Hebrews 12 tells us this life is a marathon, not a sprint. And it's not some pleasant jog across a nicely level, smoothly paved, pretty park path. It's more like a tough mutter. If you want to know what that is, talk to Lynn. Until your glorification day comes around, which isn't going to happen until the body you're in right now is dead, you will continue to share in the sufferings of Christ just as surely as Christ had to suffer until He died and was raised in glory. Embrace that reality because that's your reality for a while. But that's just the... That's just the subatomic dot at the beginning of a line of eternity. Here's how your life as an overcomer gets turned real day by day in the midst of those inevitable sufferings. You count as true today that you have been crucified with Christ. You count as true today that it is no longer you who live, it is Christ who lives His beautiful life out in you. It's not about you. It's all about Him. And then you trust today, right now, only in the Son of God who loved you and who delivered Himself up for you. For you, personally. That's how you live well. Today and every other day. Dear Father, Make this true of us. Make this true of every person in this room, I pray with all my heart, Lord. Make us live well with lives that adorn the doctrine of our great God and Savior, with with lives and words that point people to the beauty of our Savior, our Master, our Redeemer.
Father, teach us what this means. Teach us what this means so that it is very, very clear to us each day. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.